Adam Crowley. Uh, I want to talk about what the hell you guys are doing on that cheese cheese, because I, I really don't want to Google condoms, noses on my uh, work computer. So The Adam Crowley Show on ESPN Pittsburgh. Immediate revelation to start the show. How does Will Graves get a rejoin and I don't? we got to remedy that immediately. He doesn't have a rejoin. Isn't that, wasn't that Will Graves right that there? That was Will Graves. I thought you might have a rejoin though in there somewhere. I do? We'll try to find it. Well, don't blame me because I don't listen to the show. That's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. I'm Tim Benz. This is the Adam Crowley Show. Adam will be back Monday. I am done today. Wes Euler in tomorrow and Friday, unless tomorrow's show will be guest hosted by Jack Johnson, because apparently the Penguins are going to be paying him enough and paying him long enough that he can take on a few added responsibilities besides just playing hockey. We'll get to that in just a second. But the real story, the big story, the Pirates have placed Sean Rodriguez on the 10-day disabled list of the quad injury. Oh, so that was the problem. In a related story, I've been placed on the seven-day concussion protocol because I've spent so many nights banging my head against the wall watching that guy play. To replace Rodriguez on the roster, Tanner Anderson has been called up from the minors. He used to pitch at Harvard. Being from Harvard, Anderson is smart enough to know that Sean Rodriguez isn't really hurt. He's just being put on the DL. Or, if Rodriguez does have a bad quad, that's not the reason he's playing as badly as he is. We'll get to some Pirates talk a little bit later on. The fracas that broke out for no reason whatsoever last night between the Mets and the Bucks at Citizens Bank Ballpark. I understand they were yelling at each other, but how the hell could you hear it over all the planes going overhead? Now, the actual big story of the day is what our partner Mark Madden downstairs at 105.9 The X is reporting, that the Pens are signing Jack Johnson, the defenseman, as of July 1 to a five-year contract. We don't know for how much yet, but if he's signing for five years, that's too long, so I I expect the money to be too much as well. Although Jason Mackey just reported shortly before we came on the air that it is somewhere in the neighborhood of three to three point five million per season. That's a little high, but close to what I thought he'd get. And I said so on DVE this morning. It's almost exactly the kind of number I thought he would get. I just wasn't sure if the Penguins were going to be willing to pay it. But not only are they willing to pay it, they're willing to pay it for the foreseeable future. I just checked Deadspin. They say this was a great move by the Penguins, but it would have been a better move if they had just signed Serena Williams instead. Hey, look, I endorse the idea of swapping out Matt Hunwick for Jack Johnson. In fact, I endorse the idea for swapping out Matt Hunwick for Serena Williams. In her tennis skirt, with a tennis racket, in her tennis shoes instead of skates, while still pregnant. All of that, I would take Serena over Matt Hunwick. And, and I've been endorsing for a while this Jack Johnson over Hunwick thing, this swap out, but I only endorse it for roughly the same price and term, and this is as close as I was going to get, probably. I think Johnson has more left in the tank than Hunwick does. I think Johnson has talents that Hunwick never had and maybe can be found. And Jim Rutherford apparently thinks he's got a whole lot more left than even I do based on this contract that Mark has tweeted out. Now, I know what you're thinking. The Penguins 
rehab Trevor Daly at 32. They could do it with Jack Johnson at 31. The Penguins rehab Ron Hainsey at 35. Well, that's true. But they weren't responsible for those guys until they were 37 or 40, respectively. This Jack Johnson contract strikes me as one that makes them better for the short term, but it might be one that they have to buy out someday. Maybe their first buyout, or maybe the Penguins end up doing with this Jack Johnson deal what the Washington Capitals did with Brooks Orpik. Or, more directly to Pittsburghers, what the Pirates did with Francisco Liriano and Reese McGuire. Give somebody else a prospect to take the onerous contract off your hands. And since he's Sid's friend, maybe Sid can buy it out himself. 412-922-2874. Those are the numbers to call. You can tweet me at Tim Benz PGH. Now the cap space to get Johnson and maybe more people has partially been created by the trading of Hunwick and Connor Sheary to Buffalo. They were dealt together to Sabres for a fourth-round pick that could turn into a third. And actually, you know what's kind of funny is the term that results in the Penguins getting more payback from Buffalo. Uh, Check this out. Darren Drager put this out. The condition on the draft pick is as follows. If Shuri scores 20 goals or 40 points, it goes from a fourth to a third. Or if Buffalo trades Hunwick... Before the 2019 draft, it becomes a third-round pick. That's even funnier to me. Like, we'll accept this guy, but if we somehow manage to get that off of our plate because we've done you a favor, and we get something in return for that, then we'll give you the third. <laughs> that's, that's how little anybody wants Matt Hunwick at this point. If we can get rid of him, then your return gets better. How's that for negative reinforcement? Jonathan Bambouli of the Trib also tweeting out a couple of scouting reports that he's gotten, sort of off the record but on the record quotes about Matt Hunwick and Connor Sheary and why they were valued so poorly at this point by the Penguins. This is on Hunwick. I don't know if you, this is talking about moving him, trading him in, in advance of the trade that actually happened itself. I don't know if you can move him with the contract. To me, honestly, I was very surprised with the money and the term they gave him last year. I always had him as a sixth guy. Very good skater, but no other identity to his game. He's not a great puck mover. He's not hard defensively. He's a really good skater, but that's where I see him. The rest of his game is just average. If he was a little less of a skater, I'm not sure he would even be in the league. I don't know what else he brings. And you know what we saw from Matt Hunwick this year? That he was a little bit less of a skater than they thought, and that's why he was barely in the league and barely playing. As far as what Bambouli said about Shiri via this scout, what the scout said to him more specifically here, I also wonder about Shiri, what he's going to be without Sid or whoever he plays with. If you don't have a good sentiment for him, I don't know. But I love his speed. He competes hard. He's a small body, but he's not shy. I think he's a good player. He's a guy that can play in your top six. He's probably a second or third line guy, but he can score. He competes. He fits there. I guess it's just salary reasons, meaning fitting here in Pittsburgh before he got moved out. Now, Jonathan was able to get some audio today from Jim Rutherford. Uh, here's Rutherford's explanation to Bombouli from the trip, my colleague at Breakfast Bent. Well, he was part of our cup team. You know, he, he was here for two Stanley Cups. He's a good player. 
Um, this is just part of the system now, you know, with the cap system, it uh, makes it hard to keep all the players. And if you're going to free up cap space, these are the kind of things you have to do. But we thank him for what he's done. We do have uh, a lot of good NHL wingers, and so we could afford to move somebody out, and that was part of this deal. When in this process did you realize that re just re-signing your own guys was probably going to require you to open up some cap space? We've known that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there's no surprises here of late. Um, our projection on the numbers are probably going to be pretty close. Um, you know, we, we may end up having to sign a guy to a one-year deal instead of longer term, which isn't ideal, but we're getting closer on the Riley Sheehan uh, deal, and uh, hopefully we get that done. But, uh, um, you know, it's a good thing. It means these guys are doing something to get raises, and uh, that's what we deal with. Do you think you're going to have any room, on, any room left after July 1st? Are you going to be in a position where, like, if you wanted to make a deal, you'd have to do dollar in, dollar out? I'm not going to. I'm not going to spend the money just to do it. If there's the guy that we like, then we're going to spend it. And if not, we're going to sit on it for a while. Yeah, the Penguins don't do much of that sitting on money. They usually spend right up to the cap. So we'll see how that goes. Again, thanks to Jonathan Bombuli for tweeting that out from the Pittsburgh Trib. That's the exact kind of trade I've been predicting for a while. Please, someone, anyone with cap space, take on a few bodies for very little in return. Let's be honest, that's Shiri being traded for a fourth-rounder to a GM he knows and Jason Botterill, and that's him taking on Hunwick as a favor for now. And you just got that via the description I gave you about what the return is. He'll be a Band-Aid in Buffalo and will likely play as little as possible. And if he does play and stinks... Who will notice it's Buffalo? So Rutherford speaking on Shuri and Hunwick via what Jonathan tweeted out. And as for as great as it seems, those two guys going out is to get all that cap space cleared up. All that really does is give Rutherford the room to keep Jamie Alexiak and Riley Sheehan and add Johnson. I mean, those guys together cost about $3 million alone last season. And like Rutherford just said, they're going to get raises. So basically, you just traded Shiri and Hunwick for Alexiak, Shane, and Jack Johnson. That's the trade. It's Shiri and Hunwick for Alexiak, Shane, and Jack Johnson. Because you couldn't keep everybody and add one. That's a deal I like. If you put that deal on paper, I'm going to say that's an improvement for the Penguins. Those three for those two. But this isn't exactly opening up the floodgates for something splashy in free agency. If the Penguins are to do that, it's still going to have to come with another move. And now it appears those moves will be involving Tristan Jari, Derek Broussard, or Carl Hagelin. Not only Mata. No, stop. Mata has at times flirted with Marc-Andre Fleury territory when it comes to Twitter blowback from Penguins fans whenever a goal is allowed. Like, he literally got blamed at one point in a game this postseason, maybe it was one of, that, one of the games they lost against the Flyers, where he was going off the ice for a change, and people were blaming him for how he went off the ice for something else that happened. I, I, I can't remember which instance it was, but that's where Ole Mata has gotten in the eyes of some Penguin fans. The truth is Mata had a good year. He's only 23. He's getting better, stronger, healthier, Look at the improvement between age 23 and 26 for Brian Dumoulin. That's going to be Ole Mata. 
And I think he's starting at a higher plane. Derek Broussard, well, trading Broussard makes sense if the Penguins decide to keep Riley Shea in, which apparently they are trying to do. Rutherford moved mountains to bring Broussard here. He just didn't work as a third-line center, injury or not. Trading Broussard to some sort of center-starved team like Montreal would be a logical way to clear three more million. But sprinting Broussard, or spinning Broussard now is an admission that the team basically gave away Ian Cole, Ryan Reeves, a first-round pick, and Philip Gustafson for a few months of lousy production from one guy. I don't think Rutherford is willing to do that. I don't think he's willing to punt that publicly on this deal that quickly without giving it a chance to turn it into the next James Neal trade, which was lousy at first, then great the second year. My thinking is Rutherford only punts on Broussard in a last-ditch effort to clear more cap space because he's got a player out there he desperately covets. And as it relates to Tristan Jari, I, I wouldn't do that. Jari is going to be a good goaltender. But if the Penguins view him as a waste of talent sitting behind Matt Murray and they can get something good in return, then okay, go ahead and trade him. I just doubt he's going to yield another defenseman that's better than Jack Johnson or Alexiak, and I don't know if he yields a top nine forward even. There's better be sold on Casey DeSmith as the backup. I think Jari will be better, though. And Carl Haglund, the last guy I mentioned since, you know, the Penguins have decided to hold on to Rust. Gave him the contract yesterday. If you're just tuning in, you missed that yesterday. He gets $3.5 million over four years. That might come at the expense of Haglund and his $4 million price tag if they do have eyes on somebody else that's still out there in free agency. You know, it already cost Connor Sheary his spot here, but they are deeper on the right side than the left side, so it's not like they're dealing from a position of strength there if they get rid of Haglin, and what are they going to be able to replace him with? Like Basically, Michael Grabner could be a better version of Carl Haglin. It's going to be a more expensive one, though, too. So you'd still have to clear more dollars. So don't get too excited over all this cap space being cleared up. It's going to get eaten up quickly unless there's another corresponding move. We'll talk more about it with Steve Mears at 6 o'clock. He's the TV voice of Penguin Broadcasts on AT&T Sportsnet. When we come back, though, we talk some football. Matt Williamson, our insider and scout and analyst, also from WilliamsonFootball.com, formerly of ESPN, he's got a surprising response to this Derek Carr NFL Network post that Ben Roethlisberger is not a top 10 quarterback. Let's hear what Williamson says when we come back. That's next. Tim Benson for Adam. Ben, 6 of 6 for 100 yards. In the shotgun on 2nd and 7 from his own 38. Gets the snap. Blitz. Over the middle. Here comes Antonio Brown. Loose again. 25, 15, 10. Bye-bye. A.B. Antonio Brown. 62 yards. His 2nd of the game. And the crowd is enjoying every minute of it. In for Adam all week, I am Tim Benz. Pleased to be joined right now, as promised, by Matt Williamson from the Steeler Radio Network, as well as SNR and WilliamsonFootball.com, former pro and college scout. He joins us often here to talk about uh, lots of things surrounding the Steelers and the rest of the National Football League. Matt used to work for ESPN, of course, and now he joins us to talk about the NFL Network rankings of quarterbacks from a former quarterback, David Carr, and the glaring omission of Ben Roethlisberger from the top ten. Matt, do you agree with him? In a way. 
you know, I didn't see his rankings, but I do realize, obviously, that he didn't put Ben in the top ten. And it's interesting because what I'm working on right now at WilliamsFootball.com is I'm going position by position and giving my top ten ranks. And I started with quarterbacks, and I put Ben ten. So maybe I'm not that far off with Carr. And to me, there's 11 guys who I really considered possibly making the top ten. I decided to cut Cam Newton out of that group, but Ben was the next cutoff. He was 10, and it's close. I mean, some of the guys ahead of him, you can make arguments, but um, so that's where I'm at on him. I've got Breeze, Brady, and Rodgers, of course, being obviously ahead of him. When healthy, I suppose you put Carson Wentz up there, too. Who else do you determine to be a lock better than Roethlisberger? Where do you... Because I could see him more than likely being in most four to six ranges. That's where I would put him. I wouldn't have him as low as ten. Who do you have in between like five and ten then, Matt, that uh, makes you put him on the bubble? Yeah, I think Rodgers and Brady stand alone. You know, they're, they're in their own category. Then there's a gap. And really, Ben's in that next tier. And you can make an argument that he's right there. I went with Matt Ryan at number three, and reluctantly. I mean, I bet somebody takes that away from him. You know, Wentz is the one that's the obvious example to me. I also had Andrew Luck high with an asterisk by him. You know, I mean, when healthy, but maybe people wouldn't put Luck in their top ten. I just think he's a phenomenal player when healthy. Obviously, you just say that over and over with him. Um, I like Rivers. I like Stafford better than Ben right now, too. Rivers is coming off a phenomenal year. Not sure I'm missing anybody, but there was in the AFC Ben, Brady, Rivers, and Luck, and then there were six from the NFC. Russell Wilson's the one I didn't mention. I have him ahead of Ben as well. See, I would put Ben at number five and Wilson just a shade behind him. Uh, maybe bump them both down to six and seven as opposed to five and six if I'm going to put Wentz in there because he is coming back from injury. Um, I guess, Matt, I'll ask you the same thing I would ask David Carr in this situation is, what are we using then as the overarching criteria, and why are we more assured, at least in your opinion, that the likes of Wentz and Luck will come back from injury as opposed to age catching up to Ben? Yeah, and uh, the way I phrased mine was, this isn't betting on how good they're going to be the next year or two. It's just how good they are, in my opinion, right this second. You know, their body of work combined, obviously, with a lot of recency bias. Um, you know, what have we seen from them lately? Where are they in their careers? And one thing I sort of held against Ben, and he played really well in the second half of the season. I mean, it sounds like I'm bashing him, but I really am not. I've been a supporter for a very long time. But one thing I held against him is I think his situation – supporting cast is probably the best in football. You know, I, I said I did these other ranks. You'd be surprised. I'd love you on Bell a little bit lower than you probably think. But Antonio Brown was my number one uh, wide receiver. The Castro's my number two guard. I would put the Steeler offensive line overall in the top five. And he's got a lot around him. That's exactly what David Carr said. He suggest, oh, Yeah, he suggested that Bell and Brown are the reason why he's as good as he is. And what was ironic to me about that was, well, number one, there are two things ironic to me about that. Number one is that he has Matt Ryan in eighth then, and Matt Ryan has Julio Jones and Devontae Freeman. 
Um, he doesn't talk about the offensive lines. In fact, I'd go so far to say as the offensive line support is actually a bigger deal than the two skill players. But the other thing that's funny about that to me is if you took away what uh, Ben did as far as numbers went without Bell and without Brown, they are right 100% in line with his overall statistics for his career. Like if you take his career stats and you take the six games that he's had the last two years without Bell or Brown, and even if you look at the one where he didn't have either of them against Denver at 339 yards and completed like 65% of his passes when he threw 39 times, it doesn't appear to me that there's a, a noticeable statistical seismic drop when those guys are taken from him at separate times. Uh, maybe you're right. I mean, I haven't studied that. I'll certainly take your word for it. But I really do think, again, it sounds like I'm bashing him. I have him the 10th best quarterback in the league, mm-hmm. and I could make an argument that he's sixth or so. But I think he relies on Brown more than Brown relies on him, you know, and, and that should be symbiotic relationship. I mean, I think Brown is just out of this world and very deserved to be the number two player overall in that top 100. Uh, and I think that's a huge benefit. The other one is this is kind of stealing from pro football focus that Ben, when pressured as opposed to a clean pocket, has one of the biggest discrepancies in the league. When he's kept clean, his numbers are phenomenal. When he's pressured, they're not. And he's and basically he, he ain't what he used to be in terms of ad libbing and you know shrugging guys off and making unbelievable Aaron Rodgers like plays. But he is the best protection in the league. So if he were in Seattle and you know or many other situations, and Atlanta's not a good example, and you put up a good reason there that Ryan has a great supporting cast too, I think some of his deficiencies would be more exposed. Yeah, I see that. I guess when I look at, I'm trying to take in all the factors, and where I picked apart Card's argument was, you know, if he's putting Ryan in there, like we said, you could just say that it's for the same reasons that he's suggesting Ben should be out. He's got a good supporting cast. If he's saying that mm-hmm. stats matter, well, actually, statistically, he had Cam Newton and uh, Russell Wilson in there. Well, Ben has better stats in most areas than Russell Wilson and Cam Newton. Um, you know, he suggested he drew an equivalency that he wouldn't win as many games without Brown and Bell. Well, okay, if it's about winning, then you've got Phil Rivers, Jimmy Garoppolo in there, and his own brother, Derek Carr, up that high. And those guys, Stafford, he's got those guys in there. They haven't won close to as consistently as Ben Roethlisberger for a long stretch of time. So where, where I keep coming back to is if you want to try to incorporate everything, Ben has leveraged himself on all the fronts to add up to being in the top ten better than the others have, if you follow my drift. I very much do, and I think your argument, in a nutshell, is Ben's resume is very strong any way you want to look at this argument. Right, and he's, he's got enough stats, right. he's got enough supporting cast, or doesn't, he's got enough uh, winning Rings. under his belt. Right, exactly. Absolutely, and I have no rebuttal for that. You know, mine is more the eyeball test. Who do I think is playing better football right this minute? And I think a guy like Matthew Stafford is. And I don't think people realize how well Matt Ryan is playing. I mean, like, everyone looks at his numbers and said, boy, they really dropped off when Shanahan left. And, yeah, they did, but they were still, like, the ninth-best offense in the league. And his, you know, he had an unbelievable amount of bad turnover luck. I know that some people are like, well, what the heck's that all about? Like, anything that he threw that was close to being an interceptable ball was. And a lot of interceptions off tips and things like that that he just 
had an unlucky season, which hurt his stats a little bit. But he'll, you know, he'll come back to who he has been. But you're right. I mean, Ben's, Ben's resume is very, very strong. Matt Williamson with us from WilliamsonFootball.com and SNR, Steeler Radio Network. Last two points, Matt. You alluded to it, so I'll go to it next, and that is Le'Veon Bell, who is number five in that top 100 list from the NFL Network uh, based on player votes. You said you had him lower than what I might expect. How much lower than five do you think he should be? He's my fifth-ranked running back. Wow. So behind, really Gur- behind Gurley and who else? David Johnson's number one, and I think he's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and that's not fair to him. But uh, he, to me, stands alone. Then Gurley, then Elliott, and I know the argument is Elliott isn't half the receiver that these guys are. And I think that's mostly true. But if you remember him coming out of Ohio State, he was widely regarded as a major asset in the passing game. And I think he went to one of the worst coach teams in the league in Dallas, and they don't use him that way for some dumb reason to be very honest with you so i don't hold that against him i think it's there it's just not being used and last year was an odd one for him with all the suspensions and all that you know a lot of offensive line injuries he's a great player and the one that everyone's going to not give me credit for but i think alvin kamara is a very very special player and is not fluky and is every bit the receiver bell is much more of a big play threat yeah, he doesn't have the body of work or the workload, you know, that Bell does. But I just worry that Bell's declining a little bit. Finally, then, Matt, and I talked at length about this filling in for Adam in the wake of this list. Uh, you see, Roethlisberger, you know, he's in the top twenty. Uh, we can debate where he is amongst the cu- the quarterbacks, but the players had him as number eighteen. Brown, Bell, uh, they had Shazier. You talked about DeCastro. Their overall strength along the offensive line. Cam Hayward was in the top one hundred. And that's really commensurate to the level of talent that they have had throughout the Tomlin era. So let me ask you this then. How much of their inability to get to a third Super Bowl under Mike Tomlin is because of Mike Tomlin himself? And have there been other factors like the Patriot factor, injuries, uh, just the difficulty of getting there that often that should be a bigger deal when we talk about stuff like this? Yeah, I don't put a lot of blame on Tomlin, that's for sure. I mean, when I finish this series, I'll probably do head coaches, and they'll absolutely be in my top ten. But it's sort of that Jordan factor. You know, like if you're in the East when Michael Jordan was in his prime, it's awful difficult to get to the finals. And clearly I'm talking about the Patriots. I mean, Brady's ridiculous. Uh, And Belichick will once again be my my uh, number one coach without question. I mean, it's that to me is the biggest factor is the big bad wolf is still howling up north. And I mean, the Steelers have been remarkably consistent and double digit wins year after year. And they do have, they have a very good talent. So I, I think it's rough to say, why haven't they been better? I mean, they've been pretty darn good, but there's just a historic thing going on. And one thing I, I, I jotted down, Brady, of course, was number one on that list. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize this, and I'm not a big, I'm, I'm certainly not a big fan of quarterback wins as a statistic, but including the playoffs, Brady's been, he has started 288 games, you know, including the playoffs. And there's a lot of playoff games, and they're all against quality opponents. He's won 223 of them. That's unbelievable. 223 out of 288. That's unbelievable. No, it is, and uh, that's part of what I said too. It's you know, do we hold it against the Knicks that they never got by the Bulls, or 
You know, right. are we saying is, is anybody in Pittsburgh saying, boy, the Seahawks should have gotten to more than two Super Bowls? Is any in Pitt, anybody in Pittsburgh saying that the Broncos should have been more to more Super Bowls than one or the Giants? Like the, the Giants won two Super Bowls. Should they have gone to a third? I mean, I just think we look at this insulated, so to speak, to our own fandom. If you catch my drift. Right, and to really go back in time, like if you ask my dad or my uncle, you know, I was too young, you were too young, but those Earl Campbell Oilers were supposedly basically the second-best team in the league, but the Steelers were kicking their butts. Yeah, right. Yeah, same sort of thing. Right. All right, Matt. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Uh, Where can people find WilliamsonFootball.com? How do they subscribe? Where can they read your stuff? Yeah, just go to WilliamsonFootball.com. That's everything I'm writing right now, and I'm on Twitter at WilliamsonNFL. All right, and we will listen to you on SNR, too. Yeah, absolutely. Matt Williamson, WilliamsonFootball.com. When we come back, tell you what, I'm going to run down those numbers specifically, uh, the ones that I just talked about with Matt. I've got those in print on the Trib site on Breakfast with Ben, so I'll give you those specifics so you know exactly where we're coming from on that. Also, uh, the Twittersphere is already going crazy with Jack Johnson hype. And I'll get to that in a second. And a story, if you love hockey, you love metal, you love stories about the Stanley Cup parties, you got to stick around for something that was written by Mike Heike from the uh, NHL.com site. He's connected, he covers the Dallas Stars. And if you know anything about the connection between Pantera and the Dallas Stars, you got to stick around for this. We'll do that next. Tim Ben's in for Adam. It's so good. I mean, it's every song that Pantera did on Reinventing the Steel and then played it backwards. But, I mean, it's it's awesome. They did it in a day. A day. Play it louder. It's death rap. It's basically death rap. Great story on NHL.com from Mike Heike, senior staff writer for DallasStars.com. If anybody was going to write this story, I would have thought it would have been Sean Rourke from NHL.com because Sean knows more about metal than he knows about hockey even. So I thought he was going to write this, but instead it was Mike Heike, who's covered the Stars for a long time, and he put together a great piece. I just retweeted it at Tim Benz, PGH. It's the relationship between Vinnie Paul, the now-deceased drummer from Pantera, and the Dallas Stars after they won the Cup in 1999, and the friendship that those guys had from the minute the team moved from Minnesota down to Dallas. I guess Craig Ludwig and uh, who was the other player? i got to find it again now. It was Craig Ludwig and one uh, Matt Pichuk were riding their motorcycles they pulled over like at a roadside bar in Texas, and Vinnie Paul was there drinking at the bar in the middle of the day, and he recognized them. And this is back when Pantera was big time. And he recognized them as hockey players who had just moved from Minnesota, and a fast friendship was forged forever. And 
they went on tour with them and saw them playing for like 90,000 down in Mexico City, and he was like their guest of honor. And, uh, you know, they, they hosted a giant Stanley Cup party at Vinnie Paul's house after they won the Cup in 1999. And the legends of how crazy it got at Mario's where the Cup got dented in the pool and all that. It's ten like they dropped it off of his patio and dented it, and then were able to fix it, and then they like did it again. But it was every cup party, I guess, somehow involved Vinnie Paul in one way, shape, or form after the Stars won back in 1999. So if you are a Pantera fan who is mourning the loss, not only of Vinnie Paul but also the potential of a reunion, that's where if you're a fan of Pantera, this is where it's really kicking you in the nuts because these guys. There was a rumor out there that they were gonna actually go back on tour, obviously with Dimebag having died a long time ago, it was not going to be the full band, but Zach Wilde allegedly was going to play guitar for them, and there were even rumors that they were going to headline Rock in the Range next year out in Columbus. That's where Tool headlined a couple weeks ago back in the middle of May. And Pantera, it was thought, might do another album with the remaining members or go on tour. And uh, now this horrible news that Vinnie Paul passed away at the age of 54 Due to a heart attack, was it a week ago, a week and a half ago? Um, gosh, I don't know if it was in the same house or not. I have to double-check the story. But anyway, uh, I retweeted out Mike Heike from the DallasStars.com site. If you're a fan of metal or hockey, whatever, you got to read this story. Um, and I do like Pantera more than I like Jack Johnson, as far as music goes. I do like Jack Johnson more than I like Matt Hunwick. I do not like Jack Johnson as much as an upgrade over Matt Hunwick as apparently Richie Walsh does. Now, I don't know if the Crowley fans who Crowley roll Richie on his show are going to get in on this, but and I, I didn't mean to be too snarky about it, but like Richie, <laughs> Richie puts out this tweet, maybe a little aggressive, maybe pushing the envelope a little bit too much about the trade for the Penguins. Huge upgrade! Big upgrade for the Penguins on the blue line. Um, Matt Hunwick had four goals and six assists. Jack Johnson had three goals and eight assists. It's a one-point differential. Jack Johnson is coming off the worst year of his career. He didn't even play in the playoffs for Columbus. It's an upgrade. It could be a sizable upgrade. It's not like you got John Carlson as opposed to getting rid of Joe Melikar. Let's keep it in check here a little bit. But it's an upgrade with the potential of being a sizable climb up the ladder. Like, again, I'll use the analogy. The Penguins were really good at rehabbing some defensemen in recent years. Like, Alexiak got better here. Justin Schultz got better here. Um, Ron Hainsey got better here. Trevor Daly got better here. All these guys who either weren't what people thought they would be or were good, then fell on hard times, and it looked like their career was over. They've come to Pittsburgh, and they have gotten better here. And yeah, maybe Jack Johnson will be that as well. The difference between what they're doing with Johnson and bringing him in for this much term is that those other guys, they decided when they wanted to keep them and when they wanted to let them go. Like They're deciding to keep Alexiak now. They weren't wed to him. They decided to keep Justin Schultz. They didn't have to keep Trevor Daly. They let him go. They didn't have to keep Ron Hainsey. They let him go. Like, this is a marriage now with Jack Johnson 
according to what we're seeing from not only Mark Madden, who says it's a five-year, $16 million deal. Dayan Kovacevic is tweeting out the terms slightly differently, and this would actually make more sense, to be honest with you. He's got it as a six-year deal for about $2.5 million per year, which is right around where Matt Hunwick was anyway. So if you're getting Johnson for the same money, I'd rather have him for less of a cap hit for longer because on the back end, year six of that deal, assuming the cap keeps going up, uh, that's not going to be that much. So even if he stinks and they got to buy him out and it's dead money on the back end or they got to do what they did with Brooks Orpik in Washington, maybe the price to get him out of town, if it doesn't pan out, won't be so bad. 412. 922-2874, 922-2874, tweet me, at Tim Benz, PGH. All right, I want to follow up on our discussion with Matt Williamson, the moments that we have left here before the top of the hour. Will Graves is going to join us, too, before we get too deep into the 5 o'clock hour. But um, I was surprised that Matt agreed with David Carr as much as he did. I thought that Carr's analysis really missed when he said that Ben Roethlisberger was not a top-10 quarterback in the league anymore. You know, he's a quarterback who won 12 games as a starter last season and was 5th in yards, 5th in touchdowns, 4th in completions, 10th in both completion percentage and yards per attempt, but he can't crack the top 10? Come on. One explanation, and maybe Carr is in hot take mode. Maybe he's just trying to get clicks by provoking a large national fan base that backs the Steelers. I mean, if so, mission accomplished. I heard more about Carr's list than I did about Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell both being in the top five of the players in that top 100 ranking, which was revealed on Monday. It shouldn't surprise. It's the Twitter age. It's easier to be offended on Twitter than it is to be happy. But before we dissect where Carr's thinking is flawed, just go back to his actual quote. He says, yes, Roethlisberger is a future Hall of Famer, and there's no doubt that he can still help the Steelers. But he has the most talented skilled players in the league on his unit, and that pair of Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell make him look great 14 seasons in. I don't think Big Ben could win a ton of games without them at this stage in his career. Okay, so that's the logic. Now let's see how that holds up. And these are the specific numbers that I was talking about with Williamson, kind of broad base. I'll give them to you right off the... uh, NFL.com stats page here. If Carr is basically suggesting that Roethlisberger's success in his latter years is primarily correlated to just the presence of Brown and Bell, then the first thing we need to do is look at how Big Ben has performed in recent seasons when those two were absent to see if it's true. Like last year, Brown missed most of the New England loss in Week 15 and all of the Houston win in Week 16. The 2016 season... Bell missed all of the Patriots' AFC title game and those three regular season games when he was suspended. Okay, so if you subtract Brown's two catches for 24 yards versus the Patriots, Roethlisberger was 141 of 222, that's 63%, 1,613 yards, or 268 per game, 12 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, 2-to-1 ratio. His average passer rating over those six games was 936 his record was 3-3, three and three, but let's keep in mind, four of those games were on the road and two of them were against New England. For his career, in the regular season, Roethlisberger averages a passer rating of 94, as opposed to 93.6 without Brown and Bell. 
His yards per game equals 253.3. That's actually lower for a career than the recent years where he hasn't had Brown or Bell at 268.8. His completion percentage is 64.1. That's half a point better than without Brown and Bell. He has almost twice as many touchdowns as interceptions. In fact, the ratio is a little bit lower. Now, that, of course, includes the 2006 season when he was concussed out of his mind after the car wreck and kept playing anyway. But you get the point. In other words, games without Brown and Bell of late are right in line with his career averages. None of that is to mention 24 of 37 for 339 in Denver during the 2015 playoffs when he had neither of them and he was playing with one arm. His non-throwing arm. Then there was the equivalency to winning that Carr mentioned. He said, I don't think Big Ben could win a ton of games without them at this stage in his career. Okay, well then, if winning matters in your analysis of the top 10, then why are Stafford Rivers and Jimmy Garoppolo on that list ahead of Roethlisberger when none of them have a history of winning close to what Big Ben's is? If the stats are what matters and it's not winning, then why are Cam Newton and Russell Wilson in front of him when Roethlisberger had more completions, more yards, a better percentage, and more yards per attempt than both those guys last year? If having a star running back and a wide receiver as support should somehow be considered like a major caveat, well, then why is Matt Ryan in at number eight with weapons like Julio Jones and Devontae Freeman? If you're telling me age is a concern... Are we assuming Roethlisberger is going to be less effective coming off an injury-free season, but he's just old? Like We're assuming he's going to be less effective because of that, but we're also willing then to just say that Derek Carr, David's brother, and Aaron Rodgers, they're going to be top four as David ranked them, yet they're coming off of major injuries? Now, there's another inconsistency there. Like you know, Carson Wentz isn't in his top ten either. I know would have to assume that's just because he's coming off an injury. But his brother and Aaron Rodgers are coming off injuries, and they're in the top four. So it appears to me that Roethlisberger's performance is a hell of a lot more consistent than Carr's methodology here. I mean, I get it if you want to put him behind Brady and Rodgers and Breeze. I wouldn't have even batted an eyelash. If Carr had put him behind Matt Ryan and Russell Wilson and maybe even a healthy Wentz, I would have disagreed, but not much. But out of the top 10, and for reasons that Roethlisberger's skill targets are carrying him, wow, that tells me that Carr's younger brother got most of the quarterbacking talent in the family and the brains as well. 412-922-2874. You can tweet at Tim Benz, PGH. Will Graves coming up next. A uh, man who has a rejoin on the Crowley Show, and I do not. I understand uh, Woken Tom. Uh, sorry. We we got to go with Woken Thomas because Tom is just like Tom's just a regular straight white male sounding name. If I give it Thomas, it's got more of that woke panache, like don't you it. think? Yeah, yeah, I like it. All right, so we got to really investigate this Deadspin thing again in the five o'clock hour too. Okay. We we overlooked something glaring from that Deadspin goat list yesterday. Like we got one wrong. This oh, is no. on us. Oh no! It's probably because we're not woke enough. We're not woke spun enough yet, but. Us going back and correcting ourselves makes us even woker, right? It does, because we're doing self-reflection. So we're woke again. Yeah. We're we, back to woke. We are rewoken. Yes. Yeah. But um, 
So what do I talk to Graves about then? Everything, anything? Like, what are the, yeah, what are the parameters of Graves? There are no parameters. What are the rules? There are no rules. There the are no rules. The rules are off. Okay. Like, I, I know Will likes to take on some of the media. Like, Will is very woke. Oh, yeah. Like, Will is definitely someone who would appreciate that goat list. Yes, he would. Can I get under his skin by bringing up the goat list, like, right away? Is that a wise move? Is that usually how it goes with him and Crowley? Yeah, lead that, lead off with. Well, that. okay, we'll lead off with the goat list because I bet you Will agrees with every single thing that Deadspin wrote. That they picked, yeah, every single thing. We'll do that when we come back. Tim Benson for Adam.